0: Welcome to another edition of expanding mind your host Eric Davis here again pursuing uh, the quest for uh, holding conversations about consciousness. Um, I'm uh, continuing to focus on upping my game here with the uh, the audio I just had a nice lesson this uh, the other day. And uh, since the, the sound on this show used to be notoriously bad, I shouldn't be admitting these negative things. You know, in the today's media environment, you're supposed to, you know, always be uh, perfectly self-realized. That's how you get the brand going. But alas, uh, with Pete, when you got someone with my kind of personality around... You're going to get a different story. But I, after all these years, have been uh, inching my way up. And, have, you know, I've, over the last few years, the long-term listeners will have recognized a distinct improvement. Uh, we're keeping on, the, uh, on it, though. We're going to get to, I don't want to say perfection, because I don't trust perfection. And I think people can get way too uh, fastidious about uh, technology and hyper-production uh, that's one of the bad sides of having all these great tools. Is now everybody has to professionalize everything up to the wazoo, uh, which is not my my aim. Uh, very recently, just a uh, uh, just a bit ago, a week ago or so, um, I was uh, took part in the Bioneers conference, the annual Bioneers conference that happens out here in Marin County, and uh, I've been going to Bioneers off and on for a very long time. I think I was at not the first one, but the second or third when it was back in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, so it's been a fascinating to see it evolve. It's a it's a place I go to feel uh, restored and uh, rejuvenated. Uh, it's um, you, you walk onto the site and already like my my heart opens up a little bit. The people are smiling. There's a sense of possibility. Um, which is of course, increasingly rare these days. Um, and uh, the the devotion to t- uh, the engineering, if you will, of a more ecologically sustained, socially just, uh, world is a, a thriving vision at Bioneers. And this year I went, um, got my free ticket for uh, being the host of a panel on festival culture, something I've written about a lot. I've studied a lot. I've, I've been to a fair fair amount of festivals, though I'm no um, obsessive. Uh, and the panel went excellent. It was a, a great time. It, all, all of the people who spoke were Uh, Full of juice and energy and it was a wonderful crowd. It felt like a little mini festival in the otherwise alienating and banal hotel room. Uh, And I felt particularly blessed because... um, uh, one of the elders of the vibe uh, showed up, the great legendary Fantuzzi, um who's one of those characters, at least in my experience, I run into in all the most perfectly bizarre places, uh, including many of my festival experiences at Rainbow Gathering. Uh, and a lot of other events as well, Earth Dance and such. And uh, it was a great honor to have him there. And um, and it was also a great honor to, uh, to hear the presentation by our guest today, uh, Nicholas Powers, uh, a New Yorker who I first encountered in an, um, a wonderful article that appeared in the Maps Bulletin and was based on a talk that... Uh, Nick gave at the Horizons conference called Black Masks Rainbow Bodies Psychedelics and Race and this is uh a a conversation that is now starting to really uh, get legs as it as it needs to, um, and yet it's a very uh, it's a very weird one, and, and I think has been handled not particularly well uh, among a number of people within the psychedelic community. I wouldn't place Nick squarely in the center of that because he spans a lot of activities. Um, I've been reading his book lately, "The Ground Below Zero. Uh, 9-11 to Burning Man, New Orleans to Darfur, Haiti to Occupy Wall Street, and uh, since Nick uh, serves as a journalist as well as a poet as well as a professor professor of English um, he covers a lot of uh, ground and really drawing a lot of links between different sectors and zones of contemporary society so on the one hand He's a tried and true burner. On the other hand, he throws himself into uh, very challenging uh, journalistic situations, flying to Port-au-Prince after the uh, Haitian earthquake, uh, going down to New Orleans uh, to, to see the ravages of Katrina, heading off to Chad, sleeping in homeless shelters and he uh, brings through all of this his discussions it was it was very fresh to read because while a lot of his political concerns are things that many people are talking about these days issues of race issues of social justice uh, issues of economic domination uh, problems with the uh, you know the hippie scene and the narcissism of the new age um, he does it in a very rich way that's that's very accessible informal almost humble except he's also a wonderful writer's so there's a lot of poetry and kind of unexpected moves. It's like a journalist who's willing to acknowledge that he's doing what he's doing for personal reasons, and he doesn't know what they are a lot of the time, and he's as confused and in pain as a lot of us are uh, elsewise, which is something you don't often see with the map, you know, appear uh, uh, through the mask of journalism as some kind of objective thing or some kind of um, hard-hitting, very opinionated position, and I'm Growing increasingly tired with just how much discourse these days is is issued around pol- political issues, in particular, with a sense of declaiming, of of knowing, of arguing, of being in the position who who sees. And I I, I find that increasingly toxic and hypocritical. So it was wonderful to read. Uh, Nick's political reflections, and he continues to be a journalist and do political journalism because it has all these other layers in it, things that I recognize. It's like, oh wait, I could, I could, you know, drop acid with this guy on the playa. I could also talk to him about, you know, the history of race in America. I could also see him at uh, an Occupy protest and and being very aware of the complexities of those of all of these spaces. Uh, so I'm really happy to have him on the show. So welcome to Expanding Mind, Nick.
1: Thank you so much. It, it was such a beautiful and handsome glowing introduction. I, I I was like, who is that guy? I would like to meet him. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you very, very much. And also, I, I deeply appreciate you taking the time to read the book because uh, it's, it's almost like a diary entry that's been published.
0: Yeah. Well, that's part of what I like about it. I mean, you mix up um, articles that you publish with The Village Voice and uh, independent and other uh, places with these sort of fragments that are more uh, journal-like, and, and again, I just, I, I I well, I mean, I just like to you know even ask you about that. Is that again, I I just find myself you know like a lot of people reading so many political pieces now, these kind of short, part, partly journalistic, partly sort of political essay kind of pieces. Um, You know, examining all the myriad facets of our contemporary crisis. Uh, And I but I I start to like get dull and, and kind of disbelieving. I become alienated from the lack of psychological depth and and playfulness and frankly, poetry in a lot of this writing, and after a while, I can't take it anymore. But you you really approached it from the get-go for in, a, in a different way, where there was this personal element, and you were calling out sacred cows. You know, you're with leftists who, in many ways, you agree with their positions, but they're Pulling some very familiar moves, and you're going to call them out, and da da da. So you have it's a very multifaceted approach. Was that just natural to you, or did you kind of work your way into your way of doing personal journalism? And
1: the natural force pushing my writing beyond standard journalism into this kind of confessional realm of writing was really when I came to New York in August 2001 and then September 2001 happens, And so when the towers fell, there was this uh, physical earthquake that went through New York, but there was also a kind of uh, emotional and spiritual earthquake. And we were all kind of rattling inside of our bodies. And so when I wrote, I needed to write beyond the facts to the feelings, because the feelings were bursting out of my body and onto the page. And it was a way of kind of recreating myself on the page after like my life had been fractured in the street. So the page was kind of like my hospital bed and recovery room. It was my surgery room, Um, it was my laboratory. It was the place where I could put myself back together. Um, after you know the beginning of the war on terror for 9-11 in the street. So that was a natural part of it. But I also, I think, happened to be, by chance, in a very a specific intellectual crossroads at the Graduate Center because I was going into a Ph.D. for English. So I was reading lots of literature as well as a literary theory. And so I came across critic after critic who was very skeptical of the genres that authors were using to tell their story. That sometimes authors were using a genre to hide themselves as much as to tell about themselves. And so one last thing I'll say on that was that one who was really particularly helpful to me, and he's a person who I just always adore, his name is Roland Barthes. He's a French critic and writer Um, And, you know, he wasn't as big as Foucault, Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida or Lacan, but he was up there. He was one of the luminaries of the 60s, 70s kind of intellectual revolution in France. And in writing Below Zero, he had this exquisite passage because he said that the trouble with political language is that too often it's like a kind of contract and a manifesto of ideas that are already pre-arranged and pre-written and pre-cooked and pre-set. And what the writer comes does along is that they just repeat the script. And then at the end, like a contract, they just sign their name. And he goes, what's missing is not the earnestness of the position that they're taking, but we don't know the life history, the transformation of emotion that led them to want to be a communist or a socialist or a fascist or a reactionary or an explorer you know we don't know why they take that political position what is the autobiography that led to the manifesto we just have the manifesto and so you know that struck me as like yeah that's too often people regurgitate recite recycle microwave rhetoric but they don't often say what is my life history trajectory that led me to believe this And that, I think, is what resonates with the reader, not just, you know, regurgitating political idiom.
0: Yeah, I mean, and even more than just resonating, like it allows for a richer kind of of writing and allows people to more people to come from more different angles to enter into the discussion. Um, But I I think it's also uh, balancing out, again, a tendency now, which is that the scripts are more and more dominant. Like, everywhere you turn, there's a script. And, you know, for me, as someone who's, like, yeah. spent a lot of time, you know, around New York media. I wrote for, you know, New York magazines. I knew people wrote for The Times. I, you know, ha- I was part of that kind of milieu when I was a journalist. Um, I've always read that you know mainstream media along with more radical positions but you know I'm like whatever the times or the New Yorker is all you know it's I'm part of that zone but like I think like a lot of people especially recently as things are getting weirder and weirder that it's more and more obvious to me the way that the scripts are operating everywhere you know they're re- operating in certain radical zones where it's just the same rant they're operating in the in the middle brow or upper middle brow mainstream media where it's like, you know, watching uh, the, the the 180 degree shift of how Saudi Arabia is discussed in the mainstream, uh, you know, like how it tries to turn on a dime and like everybody's exposed for all the kind of hypocrisy of it. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of the material coming from the right is like a kind of designed echo chamber, but also a lot of Democrat neoliberal uh, multicultural discourse as part of the mainstream side of it is also kind of, there's just everybody sort of like on script and it's so alienating. Uh, and it feels like one of the things that everybody needs is a little more reflexivity, a little bit more awareness of how your ability to see the world you do, you do the way you do is based on where you come from. And it doesn't mean that that undermines the position, uh, so, what are the things about your past or even your your current practice that uh help have led you to see the world that you that you do I mean, as I mentioned, you're unusual in that you know on the one hand, you could speak as a as a long time burner as somebody into a party scene and you were like you know." dope head in college and all you, yeah, you used to have long dreads and you're kind of on that side but at the same time we can look and talk another thing that's about your political consciousness and the changes in that as you've moved through different positions on the left um what are the kind of forces that that really stay with you as the key context that through which you understand where you're coming from
1: the emotional need that causes people to wear a mask so tightly that they don't remember how it feels to just have a face. Because when I was in college, um, I was very hungrily searching for someone to be. I didn't quite fit in. I didn't know where I belonged. Um, my family was, uh, Puerto Rican is, uh, I don't speak Spanish. I mean, I'm learning now, but there was this kind of language limbo that I was in between worlds. I kind of, I grew up black and at the same time, my family's from the <laughs> islands. And I also was coming out of a school that it was like a, a middle-class boarding school, but my family was working class. And then a lot of the students that were there were also working class because it was free. So a lot of us had this weird tension of being in this incredibly wealthy school, but going back to neighborhoods that were destroyed and families that were barely just getting by. And so when I got to college, I I had all of these experiences, working class, middle class school, working class family, Latino background, but really growing up black in the U.S., and then. Like, you know, and so I remember when I first saw images of Bob Marley, because he's like around my skin complexion and he had the dreads. And I began to grow dreads as a form of masking. Um, I needed some way to be seen. And the, the longer the dreads grew, they almost became like a veil that people saw the dreads before they could see me. And for a long time, that was very comforting because it gave me a persona that I could assume in public. And then the dreads also became like, you know, like in a car wash, they became like a filter so that only people who I absolutely trusted could get through the dreads and inside to see who I was really, who I really was. But then the dreads also served this also other function, which is that they were like tree roots and that they tapped into a common diaspora black freedom struggle, whether whether that was the independent movement in Puerto Rico, whether that was the black freedom movement here in the United States or in Brazil, whether that was the anti-colonization movements in Africa or Jamaica or the Caribbean. And so I would go through New York or I would go wherever it was and, and the, the, the dreads were like these roots soaking up the stories of everyone who I met, whether they were friends, whether they were a family, whether they were strangers who I met on the street. And so all of these stories were soaking up through my dreads uh, kind of pulsing back into my brain so I was constantly aware of the, the history of the freedom struggle and what life was like now versus this kind of American dream that was being advertised on all the screens and ads and um, movies and TVs and, you know, radio spots. And so the, so the dreads became a multi-purpose mask, you know, both camouflage, armor, um, as well as a reflective light, as well as a roots. And then finally when they grew and grew and grew, and then I was in New York and, they were, and I had 9-11 and I still had the dreads, and then they smelled like the asbestos from the ground below zero, I mean the, the, nine, the ground, uh, ground zero. And all of that forced me to look at politics in a much more cryptic and suspicious or hermetic way. That politics often is a performance where people can find a mask to emotionally substitute or amplify or magnify a part of themselves that they're searching for. So sometimes politics is a way for people to find out who they're who they think they want to be. And or politics is sometimes a way of find, of, of people finding out who they think they've lost, you know, in the past. And, and so I, I looked at politics in a much more kind of psychological and spiritual way as a meeting ground for oftentimes very confused people who were trying to, um, who were trying on a language the way that people who are disabled try on plastic limbs, you know, yeah. or the people in a theater try on masks. Um, now. That is a supplemental vision. Like, I mean, obviously, politics has a very kind of practical side to it, which is people need to gather together to uh, force their claim on the state or on the public opinion. So I'm not trying to demean that, but I'm saying my particular journey made me very, very cautious about the zealotry that happens in politics.
0: Yeah, really what's zealotry. I mean, I guess that's partly what, what I resonated with because I have a similar Tendency, it's, it's very difficult for me not to kind of have a, a psychological radar going on when I'm dealing with people, most of the time anyway, but just specifically, you know, in this context, when people are very, uh, particularly when they're very forceful about their political position, I can't help but kind of look at the person as well. And that can be a way of avoiding what the claim is, you know, the practical side of the, po- of the politics. Um, but that's not what you're doing, or what we're really talking about either. It's just kind of expanding the scope, uh, you know, a, a bit. And I'm I'm curious how much that side. I mean, I, I'm trying to I keep, I keep thinking about how to triangulate this conversation to talking more about um, Burning Man and some of the the cultures that 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 it represents. Um, in terms of you know, one of the things you're also you also call out is not just some of the zealotry you find in, you know, communist circles or or social justice movements or or occupy, but also the um, spiritual politics, if you will, of a lot of the kind of psychedelic Burning Man world, which you know very well. You've been, I think, fifteen times or something, and it's very much, as you say, your your family. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a family gathering we had at that at that cool that cool panel. Uh, and yet, you have a very interesting way of both acknowledging the power and the value and the yumminess and the love of that kind of gathering, and at the same time, you have a very clear-eyed approach to its kind of political narratives or its transformative narratives. Um, so, I just I'd like to hear a little bit about that journey. You know, kind of how you got into it a little bit, but also more. Even as it, be, it is be served such an important part of your life, how you're also very critical of aspects of it that I think a lot of other people are more easy just to go along with because it's just a nice myth that you know we're changing transformative culture, we're changing society, our celebration is you know raising the vibration of the planet, and all the other various ways that people go about it, you're like, eh, nah, I don't think so. But it's still very valuable. Um, yeah, so I'd like to, I'd like to hear how you, uh, how you balance those, uh, those dimensions.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I feel like Burning Man is like cultural appropriation gone good. It's like the best, <laughs> the best version of it. And what I mean by that is, is, um, when I got to Burning Man, I've noticed I, I, that it was very kind of third world, very global South, very ethnic, very indigenous, very African, very sorry and bindi and yoga, but it was almost all white. So it was weird. I've never been surrounded by so much ethnicity, but with no ethnic people <laughs> at all, you know. <laughs> I mean, literally, it felt like the U.N. in the desert, but just like everyone was white. So, you know, and and so, you know, I had to go in there was Hare Krishna's and, you know, there was, you know, people with you know dreads and and and, you know, and, and I took it. You know, I, I took it in stride. I know what it was about, but the reason I say it's cultural appropriation gone right, or like you know, a good, good form of it, is that um, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, the, the West has a very kind of binary way of looking, uh, traditionally, of looking at at, at the at, at the other or the global south or the third world. Um, and so for the right wing, for the reactionary, it's like, oh, they're, they're barbarian, they're genetically inferior, um, or, the, you know, their culture is backward and primitive. Let's keep them walled off because we need to quarantine the West away from the contamination of the East or of the South. So that's a reactionary view, right? The West is the, is the most human evolved culture reaching towards the stars with the satellites, uh, reaching towards the dimensions with its science, and 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 all the other cultures are just kind of sliding backwards. Um, and then there's the liberal, progressive image of the other, which is uh, the 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 indigenous, the global south, the world actually has. It's like a noble savage image, or like a Rousseauian noble savage, where where uh, here is the truth of humanity that we that that has is innocent, and that we in the West have corrupted. And that if we want to rescue ourselves, we need to kind of return to nature. You know, they're like the Ewoks in the Return of the Jedi. Like we need to return to the, to the, you know, to the to the native traditions, to the African, to the Indian. We need to return because, you know, they have an answer. They're closer to the earth, right? And that, there's a certain kind of sense of like ahistorical patronizing in that as well, right? Because it totally ignores the the complex humanity, good and bad, uh, the complex pl- politics and history, the good and bad. Of of and of, of global South culture, third world culture, so so there's that. But when I when I see it, so when I see people at Burning Man, you know, wearing everything from the headdresses, which people I think are scapegoating in a maybe you know disingenuous way. But you know, because there's everywhere you go, like bindis and saris and dreadlocks. There's all forms of cultural appropriation. But when people, when white people put on those masks or tokens of of otherness. I think what they're doing is putting on a mask to magnify the parts of themselves that have actually been suppressed by their life in the suburban capitalist bourgeois West. You know, like they've grown up in homes that were very stifling. They've grown up in suburbs that were safe, but antiseptic. Uh, you know, they grew up in homes where parents were absent because they were working too much. Um, you know, they grew up in a very disconnected and alienating culture where, They were suckling at the teat of the mass media TV like the TV was a nipple and they were brain suckling and their heads were filled with the toxic toxins of advertising, which is the propaganda arm of capitalism, which has nothing to do with your mental health and everything to do to program you to consume. And so they were literally buying bits and pieces of personality from the store shelves. And then, and then being vicious upon each other at school, bullying each other at school or college or at the workplace um, if you didn't you know, have the right you know, uh, price tag on, on you to so the point where people who are poor and homeless are invisible because they don't even have a price tag. They're just dying in the street. So in that context, I can see why people would come to Burning Man to get away exactly from the world that created them. They grew up in a world of, of alienation. They What's secure? The Let's go to a place where you have to participate and no one is is denied. Yeah. Um, you go to, you've grown up in a world where you can't express how you really feel because you might be seen as weird or need medicine, uh, psychotropic medicine, or you mean they need therapy. Well, go to Burning Man. You, radical self-expression. You can be as weird and crazy as you want and people celebrate it. Um, you grew up in a world where you couldn't touch very much. You go to Burning Man, everyone's hugging and kissing, and there's even sex out in the open sometimes. Um, You grew up in a world of capitalism, which alienated you from your desires and your labor. What do you do? You go to Burning Man. There's no money. Everyone's gift-giving. So Burning Man is the exact kind of positive solar light eclipse opposite of a lot of where people who go to Burning Man grew up in. It's how they cured themselves. And, of course, if they grew up in suburbs or grew up in places where there weren't many people of color or wasn't a lot of cultural diversity, um, they go to Burning Man and what do they do? They adopt the kind of tokens of otherness as a way of reconnecting with the other inside of themselves, you know. So, I mean, of course, they probably know a lot about indigenous traditions and they're probably a lot of them are almost like near Ph.D. scholars in this or that tradition. But I think they're doing that too often as a way of finding themselves through the pathway of the other, right? Rather than it's really about kind of this kind of political solidarity with, you know, with people outside of our, our, you know, our in-group. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say, and that's what I think cultural appropriation that's gone well is because all cultures are formed by appropriating bits and pieces from other cultures. You know, like I, I mean, there's very few instances where something is just created out of whole cloth magically. And um, so, you know, it, and it's not really appropriation in the sense that people are making money off of this at Burning Man. It's just that instead of making money, they're actually making themselves. Right. And so it's it's probably the most healing form of, of cultural theft that you can imagine.
0: <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. One of the things you talked about on the panel was. You, you contrasted three different kinds of festivals. And it was, a I think, a really, in a way, a, a, a basic point, but it's not said enough. And that is that if you go to a, a Trump rally and you got the guys with the MAGA hats and the whole thing and they're pumping their fists and whatever, it's a different vibe than, dan- you know, a big dance floor on the on the Esplanade. But it's not... A fundamentally different thing, and that the festival has a reactionary form, and then it has what you also describe as a revolutionary form, a radical form. With occupy being, and you know, the kind of the great recent example, with Burning Man being somewhere in the middle, something you call like a status quo uh, event where you can go and it does change, does heal. There, it, there is a kind of partial utopian space opened up temporarily but in a way that's that's all you're going to get out of out of the thing um are there ways and and then at the same time though this is what i like to hear you talk about a lot of people who are in that status quo world whether it's burning man or other kind of transformational festivals have a lot of ideas about how this transformation is happening uh and while you're sympathetic with some of the reasons they're there, and some of the the experiences that they that they um, are transformed by, uh, you see some real b- uh, blindnesses there as well. And I'd just like to hear you, you know, or in a way articulate about some of the, some of the traps you think some of the festival culture people are getting into in terms of uh, a kind of political naivete or a kind of you know uh, lack of of, of critical self-awareness around ideas that possibly could be improved and made more powerful in the world if certain, uh, you know, other other ideas are, are, are overcome?
1: Mm. The idea that everyone's welcome and everyone can come. Part of the appeal of Burning Man is um, that it's an open place. Its openness is part of its moral justification. That's how the community justifies in many ways what from the outside world could be seen as very sophisticated hedonism, perversion, hubris. Um, almost uh, uh, heresy in art, like a lot of the, the you know, sacred icons are definitely trashed at Burning Man. You see that? And so, because Burning Man, tr- Burning Man is like an example of what happens in other festivals, but it really comes to a high point at Burning Man, is that because it challenges so many of the norms of the outside society, it then, in some ways, needs a moral justification, and that moral justification, in part, is that well, we're open; everyone is. And one, of, I forget, it's one of the ten principles. Which one is like you know, everyone Rad- can come in. Yeah,
0: inclusivity. I think I, I can Radical remember. inclusion. Yeah.
1: But then, they, but it's actually not. And one of the ways it functions is it's actually radically exclusive. I mean, come on, like you can't call an event that's like four hundred and forty dollars. And it takes like a thousand other bucks to get like water, food and like all the expenses of building these huge, you know, things and then traveling to like, you know, for me, like 2,400 miles and then driving another couple of hundred miles to the desert. And then be like, well, we're really inclusive. Like, how How are you inclusive? You're in the middle of a desert that is like, like that has, you know, it's like the surface of the sun. And it's like way far out there. I, I mean, it's where they bury nuclear waste and alien bodies. Like you're not <laughs> inclusive, you know, but it's part of its moral justification. You know, um, you know, the other thing is radical expression. Uh, and that's true. You know, it's very the, there's a lot of radical expression um, and there's a fun, perverse Playfulness that I really appreciate. There's a lot of vulgarness that I really I love at Burning Man But there's also these invisible red lines that people don't seem to cross Uh, you know that Like sexuality isn't as open as maybe it should be especially in some of the art um Politics are kind of foreclosed there because people don't want to disagree about politics. They want to keep a good vibe um and you know, uh, certain kinds of I would say gothic, or even nightmarish, or like Halloween-esque, you know, imagery where it's about you know dismemberment or blood. Like there's there's a whole tradition about um, the 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 breaking down of the human body and, and and nightmare goalish images. You don't really see that at Burning Man, mm-hmm. right? Everything's kind of fluffy. You know, it's kind of like nice and it's about keeping a positive vibe. So there's a certain kind of unspoken aesthetic, you know, red line that people don't cross because they want to keep the good vibe. Uh, The other is just the privilege that shields the event. You know, in a certain way, Nevada pays off the surrounding authorities, you know, with a huge, I mean, not like a direct payoff. It's not like they just, it's not like, it's not like a Scorsese films where they're just like handing wads of cash to the cops, you know, although that would be a great breaking story. But it's just more that everyone knows that Burning Man brings in gas money. Uh, They buy tons of food, tons of water, tons of supplies. They have storage in Reno. And so, you know, no one wants Burning Man to go because it brings a lot to the city. And so, you know, there's a kind of class kind of scratching of each other's back. You know, everyone knows that tons of drugs are done at Burning Man, but you don't see you know, SEAL Team Six dropping out of an of a helicopter and rounding up you know people using drugs, because they know they want the event to keep going. So there's a, a certain amount of class privilege there, and then there's also a certain amount of racial privilege. I I mean, I just do the mental experiment: if Burning Man was black, you know, if it's just like all black people gathering in the desert, like would they be? You know, with the cops just be like, oh sure, have a good time. <laughs> hey, you know what? I have an old KKK outfit in my in my attic for my grandfather. Maybe you want to burn that too. Like, of course they wouldn't. Like, so I think there's just a lot of unspoken things that that um, that don't really fit the narrative that are part of the unspoken infrastructure that actually keeps Burning Man going and what it is. And in some ways, especially like the, the separation in the desert. I think in some ways, the fact that it's separate and it's temporary adds to the dreamlike effect. If it was permanent, then it would start getting messy and political. So it's exactly because it's, it's in the Salvador Dali painting of a desert and the clock is ticking as, as soon as you get there. that it, it adds to this fierce, lucid dreaming effect of, of the playa.
0: Absolutely. And I think
1: that that wouldn't exist any other way. So yeah. it is what it is. But I think, you know, a certain sense of irony and humor about Burning Man maybe help pops the bubble on a little of the kind of pretentious. And then the last thing I'll say is that I think the level of pretentiousness that sometimes exists on the playa, not always, not always. You know, there's the orgy dome you know, there's the disabled walk and run, you know, literally disabled people like with their wheelchairs and plastic uh, figurines being dragged behind them. Like that was awesome. There's the rabbit march on the man, you know, I mean, it's great. And I think that those things help pop the bubble of pretentiousness, right? But I think the level of pretentiousness at Burning Man goes up to the degree that people forget the infrastructure of privilege that allows for that bubble to to inflate into this beautiful, luminescent, you know, rainbow, oily quality that it has in the desert before it pops in seven days. You know.
0: Yeah. you know Well said. Well said. I was uh, I was particularly thinking about. One you know, issue that's interesting on in, in, about race and, and and particularly not just the festival culture, although it, um, you know, I'd like to hear you talk about the experience of being a person of color on the on the ply. And I know you helped uh, found a camp. And it's always something that I've been very aware of. I, I lived in New York for a long time, and i'm I'm used to a pretty uh, multi-hued, social environment and so i was i was always very kind of aware of that in, in the many years that i was at burning man but um and had some good conversations about it over the years that i always like you know step up and ask people about their experiences and how it how, how it works um and then you also I, as i mentioned wrote that article that appeared in in the maps bulletin about uh psychedelics and race and one of the things that i wanted to ask about your impression is that, you know, there's a there's a there's a you know, a kind of, you know, Neil, uh, sort of a, a liberal progressive drive for diversity. So if you're going to have a panel on psychedelics, you know, you don't want to have the same old white guys. We're sick of hearing about the white guys. And then, you know, there's a lot of people who other folks who who can speak and a lot of, you know, more, you know, some people show up. But everybody would love, more, you know, I think not everybody, but a lot of people, a lot of us would love more diversity. But there are also things that aren't just about the way that privilege and education and institutions already have certain barriers set up. There's also some things, and this is what I want to ask you about. You write a little bit about it in your book, where there are resistances to psychedelic culture. Within, you know, communities of color, partly based on uh, just the perception of drug culture, partly the way that drugs are treated differently historically in these groups, partly out of a suspicion, a political suspicion um, against their meaning. And as somebody who's, you know, uh, a, a psychedelic and political person of color, how do you how do you see that tension? Is it a tension? Is there um, are there are there aspects of that 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 also could come into play in order to really genuinely diversify? The, the whole the larger conversation about psychedelics, not necessarily just festival culture. In the end of the day, I don't know how many people of color really want to spend that time spend their time at Burning Man because they're like, "What? It's all this fucking white people they're like doing all that thing, whatever." Like I've, taught, I've had I've heard a lot of people pull that down, but but looking broader into the sort of more general like transformative psychedelic culture. Um, yeah, what what are what are some productive ways to to take it to another another level?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I was, I I have been the the uh, the beneficiary of a surprising, but also to be honest, a kind of unwanted tokenism in that the psychedelic kind of uh, enchanted core of the counterculture has kind of been caught with its pants down in terms of diversity. Because in one way, the kind of, the counterculture is, you know, bursting at the seams with visions of tomorrow and inner visions from its psychedelic trips. And you know, kind of perceives through the veils of time what society could be. And at the same time, because of how the counterculture was formed in the United States, um, everything from, you know, the beatniks in um, the West Coast and and in New York, and then morphing in, you know, the 60s with the kind of generational rebellion against the the Cold War generation, um, and... Kind of culminating in the b of the 1968, you really had, it was kind of a, a white middle-class rebellion against their trauma, their parents who were traumatized by World War II and came back from the war alcoholic and with shell shock, or their moms were shell shocked from having jobs and then being thrown out by the men who came back. And then, you know, these really dysfunctional families. And so, you know, but yet they grew up in this great material wealth of post-World War II. America was the only economy really functioning. Everything else was uh, blasted apart by bombs. So you had this 1960s generation, you know, who was mostly white and middle class rebelling and creating these kind of enclaves. And then what happened... Is that there there the segregation that happened that that was formative for that generation basically just stayed. You know, there wasn't a, you know, it doesn't seem like there was this great integration that happened, you know. Um, and so, you know, when I go into the circles, you know, I see wealthy white liberals who are in some ways either directly from that 60s, 70s generation or the children of it. And You know, I happened to be in that circle because I was invited in by a a kind of a a really cool West Coast tribe of people in the Bay Area who are almost all people of color and who just knew about Burning Man. And they invited me in. I had no idea what it was about. And when I got in there, I stayed at Burning Man for 15 years and I'll always go back for as long as I can because it, it really healed a culture, a a spiritual need that I had that was very specific to me. If 9-11 hadn't happened in New York and I was and I and if I wasn't there. I may have not gone back to Burning Man, but I kept going back because I had soaked into my body a lot of anxiety and terror from either 9-11 or from reporting from Darfur or reporting from Hurricane Katrina's New Orleans And I needed a place to pour that anxiety into. And the desert was this huge sponge that I could pour all that anxiety into. So I had a very specific connection to Burning Man that wasn't really about the parties. It was about, you know, the spiritual energy, the crackling mystery that happens in the playa. So all that to say is that, you know, I'm there. So of course I make friendships and through those friendships, people then kind of catapulted me into a position of like, hey, do you want to speak here? Do you want to speak there? And so I find myself, you know, at these panels or conferences and because I'm a, a literature professor and because I'm an activist and because I've done psychedelics and I do that, I kind of fit that moment. I fit what they need. So I'm, I'm a, the perfect profile of it. Um, but it's still, to be honest, it feels uh, it kind of feels like tokenism. It, it, it feels like I'm being brought into a pre-existing space Um, So that people can hear a different point of view, but also so that it looks diverse. Does Uh, that make sense? Yeah. And, and, and for me, the reason I say tokenism is because when, when it's an organic community, it's people kind of know each other because they've lived with each other. uh, You know, they have relationships with each other. um, And you know, they've married with each other, they have kids with each other, they've tripped and journeyed together, you know? And so the, so it's not like you're just being brought in, you know, from the outside, which I should be careful. Like I'm in the inside. So, and I have relationships with people, so it is more organic for me, but the larger question of diversity Hmm. is that it actually just takes time for people to actually be inside and not only invited, but also like, well, how, how does this place become relevant for a new generation, say, of millennial youth of color um, who I would say really need the ceremonies in these spaces and really need the lessons, say, on polyamory or psychedelic le- light living? Because I think that these values are actually make life a little bit easier because they encourage you to figure out what your desires really are. And there's a lot of youth, millennial youth of color, who are literally lost and abandoned and are trying to find themselves in the maze of the cities and in the streets. And they have conservative families sometimes who don't really understand them, or they have very violent neighborhoods that don't understand them. And they're just trying to figure out how to live. And I think that a lot of these life lessons are right there in the psychedelic community or in this kind of like hippie counterculture community, but there's really not much of a bridge between them, you know? So I, I guess I'll end by saying this. I think that diversity shouldn't be about saving the ass or the reputation or the face of the kind of wealthy white liberal communities bringing in you know, indigenous or people like me of color as a kind of tokens, but really saying we don't need to be saved. What we need to do is that we have experiences ceremonies and lessons why don't we bring in youth of color who are just starting out on their life and show them that there are so many different models to living and we can offer you you can take it if you want or not, or leave it but at least here are ways that you can live that may make it easier for you to feel at home in your body you know and in that kind of relationship and then what you do is you wind up recruiting a really new, powerful, vibrant, energetic generation um, who it's more it's more of a giving and taking, you know, rather than kind of taking a, a paintbrush of color and, and dobbing it on the on the advertising for the, for the next conference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a very interesting conversation with this fellow from. From Detroit, um, named Madu, who who was traveling with uh, Kilindi, who's this you know very interesting character, also from Detroit, who's uh, you know become a, a figure on the on the psychedelic scene, holding down a very intense uh, heroic dose <laughs> approach to psychedelia that's um, pretty intense, and he's got a very fascinating, very far out rap, and and Madu is one of his. Um, a fellow who's worked with him and who is very convinced of the value for you know MDMA and, and more uh, classic psychedelics for people in the ghetto working with the enormous stresses and all the inherited uh, trauma and all the the, the grief and, and, and claustrophobia of that condition. And one of the things he was talking about, though, is that, is that a lot of people that he's sort of like, hey, you might want to check this out, um, that people are, are uh, they associate it with a kind of, with just, you know, craziness, with just being crazy or being out of control. And he was talking about how interesting it was that when... Uh, to try to like reshape what these things meant. and that it was kind of frustrating for him. He was clearly kind of frustrated with it. So there's all of these weird blocks and I'm try as you speak, I'm trying to imagine what these uh, what these alternatives uh, might look like um, in terms of creating spaces and, and environments and invitations that aren't just token and aren't just making people feel, feel better but getting down into the to the to the grittiness uh you know and one of the things that i always think about in terms of the 60s because like you know psychedelics in the in the white counterculture whether it's more druggy or more political was really pervasive and then in black struggles it's very hit and miss like some people are really opposed to it some people are kind of down with it but for every you know in the George Clinton mothership connection kind of exuberance, there were people who were really resistant to it. And I think it's partly that it gets back to that privilege thing. White, white people, and particularly white men, can afford to, quote-unquote, go crazy. I can go crazy, write a memoir of the craziness that I went through, act crazy at a street, line, but I'm covered, I'm good. But for somebody of color to go crazy, that's a whole other ball game like the way that systems control what that means. Because in some ways, psychedelics is letting you yourself get a little crazy, a little bit unmoored, un- out of control, in an environment where you don't know what's going to happen. And so it's also about building but Yeah, Well, this-
1: there, yeah, there's a good... Yeah, well, it, it, gets, it gets back to the theme of the mask because one of the ways that people of color... In poor neighborhoods, whether it's uh, you know Latinos in the Bronx, Boricuas in the Bronx, um, uh, you know Caribbean folks here in Bed Stuy, African Americans in, in Harlem, and then Spanish Harlem—I mean, like whatever it is—that there's like a mask of toughness. And Elijah Anderson, I believe his name is, has a really good article, and it's also a book called *The Code of the Streets*, and talked about how. Uh, young men and women but specifically young men have to perform a mask of toughness because they don't want to be seen as an easy mark they don't want to be seen as a pussy someone being shoved around or you're a bitch or i can step on your shoes i can i can shove you i can you know take take anything i want from you and especially your respect and so they have to wear like it's like a mask and then on top of that there's then the other mask of when you step out of out of that neighborhood, and you go into you know predominantly white spaces. There is a lot of judgment. Oh, is this person talk hood, act hood, or um, even if you're not? Say you're coming from a middle class black neighborhood, a Latino neighborhood, and and you know you've gone to your Brown University schools, and or you you know you've gone to your Emerson, and you come out and and you're cool, but every, you know there's still that way of looking, and so you wear a mask to try to hide. Uh, both your own inner anxiety, your own fear, and and, um, it's like a a protective mask. And so the thing with psychedelics is psychedelics melt mask away. The psychedelics melt the ego mask, whether you wear it for others or you wear it for yourself. And so for a person whose survival depends on that mask, the idea of something that could melted and leave you vulnerable around people you don't know you can trust is terrifying. Um, And then finally, there has been a history of white supremacist institutions, whether it's um, the plantation owners giving lots of alcohol to his slaves, whether it's uh, cops or the mafia looking the other way as heroin floods the nightclubs, the black nightclubs of the 50s, and you have amazing musicians. Uh, John Coltrane's friends, or um, uh, Billie Holiday, who are on the needle on heroin. Um, you have the the drug epidemic, uh, the crack epidemic um, of the '80s and early '90s. You know, and then you know you talk about where well, how did the how did the crack get here? Um, so there's a, been a deep, long suspicion of drugs in the community because they've always been seen. They've always been seen as elements that are destructive to black America ra- rather than liberating of.
0: I should have introduced uh, and I think- True earlier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're a child. Hey, you want to
1: say something to the people there? <laughs> hey, True, you want to say something? <laughs> yeah. Well, hold on. Let me see if we can get your baby laugh. That'd be good. Hey, kissy baby. Oh. Kissy baby. <laughs>
0: that's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, you want to say how to be okay. Okay. All
0: right. Well, we got about uh we got about a minute left here. So uh I I just want okay. to let you finish that finish that thought um if you have uh
1: Well, just it's for for white people, I'm sorry. That's a really la- lazy way of saying it. I think For whites in the counterculture who had a certain measure of class privilege, um, psychedelics was introduced and used and seen primarily as a means of liberating oneself from the material world, from um, a very materialist United States. uh, From liberating oneself from capitalism and that that kind of counterculture narrative um, and of course, there's some people who succeeded at it, some people who failed at it, but there was at least that revolutionary idea. But that was never really the experience for people of color. Yeah. You know, Latinos getting busted and thrown in jail for years over marijuana. You know, the the Mexican weed rapist. You know, which one of the first kind of uses of of that idea of the Mexican rapist, like oh, they're on weed, and this goes back. You know, g- this goes back generations. Yeah. Um,
0: well, well I'm, fr- I'm afraid, afraid we're going law- to have to. I, 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 we, oh, I, we totally keep my, talking i know we're just we're just going we're just going to keep on uh keep on rolling um but <laughs> but we do have to end it here so i wanted to uh, thank you for joining us on uh on expanding mind
1: thank you so much thank
0: you yeah it was great nicholas powers once again author of the ground below zero Uh, It's a wonderful collection, and if you go to his website, which I'll put a link to, you can catch up with his more recent uh, journalism and and poetry and work. So thanks again. And uh, until next week, folks, keep your minds open.